Welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Lisa Heidke's passion is for writing fiction, typically stories about women in their 30s and 40s, navigating friendships, careers, romance, and ultimately triumphing over adversity. With several previously published under her name, Lisa Heidke, Lisa's seventh novel, Lily's Little Flower Shop, was published as Lisa Darcy by Bloodhound Books in the UK in May 2021. It has since been published in France as well as Italy. An updated edition of Claudia's Big Break, which was initially published in 2011, has been revised and retitled My Big Greek Holiday and was also published by Bloodhound Books in July 2021. Her ninth novel, Should You Keep a Secret, is an updated reworking of Stella Makes Good, which was initially published in 2012 and was published by Bloodhound Books in March of 2022. A creative writing teacher, Lisa also presents workshops, has been on panels at RWA conferences, GenreCon, Sydney Writers' Festival, and many regional writers' festivals, including the inaugural Barry Writers' Festival in 2022. Oh, I am so excited to chat today with Lisa Heidke, also known in her writing as Lisa Darcy, depending on when you're getting her books or where you've started reading her books. And I think that this may actually frame a little bit of what we talk about today, but this is going to be one of those fun new author, we'll call it a deep dive, but we go as deep or as shallow <laughs> as, we, as we end up going. But Lisa, I'm so excited to chat to you today. Thank you, and I'm really, really excited to be here. Yeah. It's great chatting with you. Yeah. Well, you are multi-published, and you've published here in Australia. You've also published overseas. Maybe I, I'm just going to dive into sort of the big thing that I don't know the answer to, although I know you said you shared it with others on panels and things like that before, but the move from Lisa Heidke to Lisa Darcy, what was the reason for you to take on a new pen name? Well, to be honest, it came out of the blue. When I signed with Bloodhound Books UK, so I signed a contract with them um, and I had no idea that they'd want to change change my name. So Basically, it boiled down to they wanted to rebrand me. Right. Okay. So they wanted a completely new persona. And even though I loved my time and publishing five books with Alan and Unwin in Australia, those books didn't really go anywhere else. I think I sold three copies in New Zealand, maybe five. <laughs> but, but really, it was very... Australasia focused. So when Bloodhound took me on and they took me on to to publish a new book called Lily's Little Flower Shop, but they also had the mind that they were going to edit earlier books that I'd written. Mm. 
right. and republish them. Right. So it made sense for them to go, well, we're not going to, you know, people will get confused if yes. we republish under Lisa Heidke. So I was the one who came up. I thought for sure that there would be an author called Lisa Darcy and I couldn't find one. So oh I was God. thrilled that I was able to call myself Lisa Darcy and also get a, a Twitter and a Instagram handle, Lisa yeah. Darcy, and also have a Facebook author page, Lisa Darcy. So, oh my so, so when I got the email from the publisher saying we want to change your name, do you have any suggestions? I went, oh, my goodness, this is going to be <laughs> so hard. And seriously, Ange, within about half an hour, you knew it. I'd realised that Darcy was free, that I could change all my, you know, Yes. handles on social media and the publishers loved the name and I went good okay well and it's certainly so Bloodhound Books is based in the UK we should yes. say that and Thank so you. it makes a lot of sense on multiple levels yes. <laughs> as far as I'm yeah, concerned yeah. why you choose Darcy and the genre that you've been writing in even though Bloodhound Books sounds very mystery heavy and I haven't done mm. a lot of research into what else your books are firmly based in what I would call commercial women's fiction. Absolutely. I've always loved your stories. I mean, so oh, I met you, you first as a fan <laughs> on Twitter way back when I liked Twitter. Yes. Um, <laughs> way back when everybody was a lot more friendly. So that's really interesting. That's the most unique reason I've heard mm-hmm. about changing, but branding is so much more important now. And especially when combined not only with taking on a new manuscript, but looking to revive some of the older manuscripts so they could make them theirs. And there isn't this confusion because we know that things live on the internet for what feels like forever. It's very Mm. difficult. Even if we're looking at a question that some people might have about going from self-published to traditionally published, One of the reasons that a traditional publisher may be wary is if the self-published book has been out there with a certain kind of branding for Mm. a long time, with a certain cover, because it is incredibly difficult to get it pulled off. You can talk to different web people and try to get it done, but it's very difficult. So one of the ways to fix that relatively easy is by giving it a new name. And I know that the new titles, the revised books have new titles as well. So same-ish story and new title, new author. So no confusion. Nobody's going to be thinking, oh, wait a minute, which one should I buy? I want the latest one. They know which way to go. Yeah. And the two books that have been republished which was uh, Claudia's Big Break, which now is uh, my big Greek holiday, and Stella Makes Good. And to be perfectly honest with you, Ange, I never liked the title Stella Makes Good because it doesn't say anything. I was going to say, I'm not sure what that means. Well, I don't know either. I mean, Uh, so mysterious, but not the mystery that you're looking for. (laughs) So, So with both of those titles, the one about the Greek holiday, so the, the retitled one for Stella Makes Good is Should You Keep a Secret? Perfect. And it's much more enticing. It asks a question in the title and it fits the storyline mm. much, much better. Mm. So I've been absolutely thrilled that both of those novels have had a new lease on life, which has is been it, 
Did it feel more, did it feel more collaborative this time? Not again, not saying anything was wrong with the first run, but when you switch publishers, every publisher is different. It's not just down to size either, but it sounds like this was a, a bit more collaborative or you had more a say in maybe where things would go. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was really interesting uh, revisiting those stories, which were published 10 years ago, you know, for them to come out now. Because the other thing is that not only were they updated to 2022, but things that you might have been able to say 10 years ago in a novel, which certainly the teenagers were saying things and conversations, you have to adapt to, you know, not that they're completely sanitised or anything, but I think in 2022 we're more mindful of what's going on in the world than perhaps we were or or certainly than I was in 2012. So the world has changed and the books have been updated to reflect that. I think there's a lot of power in that too. And depending on where anybody lay on the, we'll call it political spectrum, but it's not Mm. politics. I think it's empathy and recognizing that just as individuals, as authors, as well as people, we are dynamic. We're not static. No matter what somebody may say about going back to the good old days or whatever, (laughs) you can't can't move back. You can only move forward. And And also, also, I want to say to your listeners as well, the whole idea of me republishing those books were to actually update them and have them in a 2022 setting, Mm -hmm. as opposed to a publisher just reprinting a novel that was written in 1990. And I think that Obviously, that's really valid to reprint books that were published in 1990 or 1960 or 1850 because they're a little time capsule of that society. So that is also really important. But I just want to make it clear that that was never the intention with my books. It was the publisher's intention was always to update them, bring them up to date 10 years later. Yes, same, similar stories. But also I think that as a writer I've developed over the last 10 years. Yes. So, so the writing's more nuanced and and while the through line might be similar, certainly the subplots and secondary characters have far, their storylines are far more involved. There's much more depth to those two novels 10 years on than there were than there was back then. Mm. Yeah, I'm excited to get those. And I, it's a beautiful segue because that's where I was going to go with this conversation, number one, that rather than it just being a simple, let's smack a new, Hmm. you know, cover on it, change the name, bing, bang, boom, we'll put it out because this market hasn't seen it. The biggest thing that I found working with writers is that you do develop. You were a different woman when you finished writing the first draft than you were by the time it was published and a different writer. So when we look not only at our culture as a whole, but you over time and how you've developed your own writing and what you love. So that's the other thing you have read. And I've seen lots of your posts and I love that you post other writers books and either a mini or a bigger review on what you think we are affected Mm. positively by all of those, but allowing ourselves to dive deeper 
as you were saying, especially when I'm thinking about the Stella Makes Good turning into having a new title and getting something that is still intriguing, but lets you see that character develop over time Mm. and that mystery. I was going to ask, I know the answer, but hey, it's been a while since we've talked. So (laughs) it may have changed in your bio that they would have heard. You are not only a writer, but you also teach other aspiring authors and creatives writing. So I always want to know, are you a plotter, a pantser, or have you found your way to plancing a bit of both? (laughs) Where are you now, Lisa? My first love, I will always be a pantser at heart. (laughs) Always. What I mean by that is I will start with a character in crisis, hopefully on the first page, definitely in the first couple of pages, but I try to make it the first page. And I go with that. And that first draft is really a stream of consciousness, just getting the through line down about what's happening to that character and where they're at, you know, basically what's happening, what that character's journey is. So I must say, to begin with, I'm a pantser. And then when it comes to the second, third and 20th draft, (laughs) I look at it and go, okay, so you've basically, and I say to myself, okay, you've got the skeleton there. Now you need to add the heart and, you know, and the kidneys and the, and the skin and the. I get it. (laughs) You know what I mean? You know, add the body to it. Off of Halloween. So it makes sense that you're talking about. And the the fourth draft might be, you know, adding the clothing and confirming what their actual career is and their hair colour and and what have you. You know, I like in one of my novels, for example, I had the main character started off as an interior designer. So in the first draft, she was an interior designer, but down on her luck and her, you know, her marriage had gone to hell and uh, she had um, two teenagers but wasn't paying them much attention. Anyway, the point of that story is that by the time I came to write the second and third draft, I went, the interior designer aspect of her life is not adding anything to her story. It's just sitting there. So what I did was changed her career and she became a naturopath. And I thought it was far more fitting that she was abusing her own body, not taking care of herself and, you know, really, really at a, at a low point in her life. And yet in her professional life, she was going to work talking about, you know, the whole body and, you know, being kind to yourself and taking these lovely supplements and all this mindfulness talk. So, yeah. so I loved that. She was basically an imposter. You know, she was was doing nice work. Yeah, Mm. it ratchets up the tension, which which makes me think as a pantser, are your characters coming to you? So you get them on page one. They're coming to you, at least they're coming out of you in the middle of their crisis. And you're Mm. able to, I still think it's amazing. And I know Natasha Lester does this as well. She'll go, oh, I'll pants for a few thousands of words, 20,000 or 30,000 words before I know if I want to write this. <laughs> that's, that's kind of Absolutely. amazing, but whatever. But are they living or they're walking around? So you kind of know where they're going, but you just haven't plotted it out yeah. in paper. Yeah, or in absolutely. And so my themes with my books are always triumphing over adversity. Yeah. 
And while my my stories aren't fairy tales, but because they're, you know, they're real life, real characters who you could meet in the street or at schoolyard or at work and be a colleague, but they have a hopeful ending. So I always know that even though the character on page one is in the depths of despair, and that despair will only increase as the crises and tensions, you know, ratchet up towards the two-thirds mark, but I know that it will end hopefully. Yeah. Okay. So look, and I think knowing that that triumph over adversity is your story message, I always think of that as that's the story message or that's ultimately that hopefulness is that GPS coordinate at the end. Like I know they're ending up there. I don't know exactly what it will look like yet, Mm. but it allows you, and I've had these discussions before, there's that ability to grow along with the character. So it's give or take. So just as an example, and I can't remember that character's name, but I know exactly the story you're talking about. It started with a kiss. I'm, yes. I'm sure that's what it was. <laughs> yes. It's like, I can't remember the game. Yes, no, that's it. That's it. That's it. Now, did she tell you? So at what time? Because you talked from pantsing feels very much like an intuitive and you're in conversation that's all very internal. And I for listeners, I'm kind of pointing down into my heart rather than up at mm. my head intellectual, where we're getting to plotting and maybe we're in a third, fourth, twentieth <laughs> edit. It feels intellectual. When she told you, you know what? I'm not actually an interior designer Mm -hmm. or was it sort of, there's something off here. So was it an intellectual choice, do you think? Or was it 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 was definitely, as I think I mentioned, it just didn't fit. Mm -hmm. And also, and that career of being an interior designer wasn't adding to my story. Yeah, And you know, and your listeners will know that, Everything within the novel, every conversation, every scene has to propel the story forward. And basically her choosing cushion covers and decorating people's houses, even though I would love to do that, and there just wasn't uh, as much on the line, as much at stake. Right. For her, if she was that, if I made her a naturopath, it meant that she could definitely make mistakes at work and have outbursts that are completely diametrically opposed to how a naturopath should be presenting herself or himself. And certainly the naturopaths I've met (laughs) have been serene and just, oh, clear skinned and, you know, (laughs) know, they're doing it right. Well, it makes you think it'd be like if you had one of your characters being a marriage and family counsellor and absolutely having a bomb get thrown into their own relationship but have to show up every day. Whereas if you mess up on cushion covers, you need to swap those out. Like, so what? Yeah, Nobody's dying. Nobody's, you know, calling you out saying, what are you talking about? You're not very fancy. (laughs) So you're right. There wasn't enough tension. So it was sort of that exploring, Mm. but you still pants it the first way through. Yes, okay. yes. And and uh, like with Natasha, whether that's 20,000 or I get to 40,000, I will do that until I have some sort of ending. So I don't care that it might only be 40,000 words. So when I'm writing a full-length novel, my aim is for about that 85,000 mark. Yeah. 
But in that first draft, I, you know, if it's 40,000, it's 40,000. If it's 60, it's 60. I will just then go back. And that's when I really have to go, all right, Lisa, (laughs) you need some sort of structure. So that's when I will put in, and again, and some of my books have been based over two weeks, like my big Greek holiday was two weeks. Lily's Little Flower Shop was over a year, eight or nine months. Should You Keep a Secret, I think, is over. That's also only over about 10 days. Um, And so... So I think when I when it comes to those next drafts, I've got a pen and paper beside me so that I can keep track of of days. And mm. anyone who's a parent out there listening will know uh, most of my books feature children, whether they're young, primary school or teenagers, but they've got after school activities. Yeah. So. If if you know that every Monday afternoon Sally or whoever it is plays netball, you've just got to be mindful that that you've got that throughout. Right. Um, Interesting. So is it almost even like a feels like your plotting because it's after is more you mining yourself for oh what is the answer here? I see that I've only got forty thousand words. I need to bump that. Yep. I mean, like twice. So I need to know what's my time frame. And then what are all these other issues with going on? Like who are my support and or (laughs) turning the screw sort of characters in here? And where are the characters actually in the world so that you can start to flesh it out Mm. and see it and either give them another hurdle or whatever. But either way, it isn't a strictly look like a save the cat or a, are there any, because I know you do teach as well, are there any structures that even though you don't necessarily follow it, <laughs> that you say, if you're a starting writer or if you get stuck, here's what I think is best to find that balance between the intellectual and the creative? Yeah. And I do say to writers, when you get stuck, I mean, there's lots of different things you can do when you get stuck, but you don't always. There's no right and wrong when it comes to writing yeah. because, as you know, writing is all about the rewriting. And likewise, you don't always, I tend to start at the beginning yeah. and try to go to the end in a first draft. Yeah. So I do it chronologically. But that's not for everyone. And I say to people, if you get stuck or when, it's inevitable that you yeah. get stuck. <laughs> Even if you're a plotter, it's inevitable that you'll get stuck. So when that happens, go to a scene or a character that you find easy or that you like. Mm. So in any book, uh, whether it's plot or character-driven, there's going to be several characters. So if you're stuck, just have a think and go, you know what, I really like the character Mandy or Steve and I haven't done much development with that character. So what I'm going to focus on today, because I don't know what I'm doing, is on that character. Mm. And even though it might not end up in the novel, for that character you've got to have things like, okay, so what's the background? Is this person married? Is it a sibling? What's their job? Research their their job. You know, it might, you might only end up writing one paragraph about that. But I think it's exercising a different side of your brain. If you go, I'm not feeling it today. So what I'm going to do is just research on the internet. So for example, 
whether your character's a, a librarian or a, you know, radio announcer or a comedy writer, or in Lily's case, a florist, other characters around them that you mightn't have fleshed out when you're feeling stuck, have a look at the other characters. What are they doing? Or reread a favourite author. Um, Go for a walk. Listen to a podcast like this. Anything that's going to make you think, oh, okay, I could approach it from this side. Yeah. And I do say in my writing, (laughs) if you're really stuck, perhaps have a flashback to a holiday or to an incident. Now, as we said, every scene and every dialogue has to propel the story forward. But if you're stuck with a character and you know that they have to find out this vital piece of information, you could have a flashback where they remember, you know, the the holiday in Hawaii or something like that that triggers them because in Hawaii they broke their arm and ended up in hospital and now they're in hospital visiting their elderly father who's had a heart attack. And what it does is can release other facets of that, that character. You can bring in their anxiety, their terror, their fear, um, the fear of abandonment or whatever it is. So I love it. Well, it's a lot more intuitive when you're doing that too. And I think the other thing you're saying that I love is giving yourself credit. So most writers, whether they're new or actually even experienced, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, having gone and written so many novels with one particular publisher and then getting a contract for one new novel to start and then these others, this expectation that writers have of themselves, hmm. I've done it before, surely easy peasy. I'll <laughs> just, I'll just do that again. But giving yourself credit for it counts as writing yep. if I take a walk and think about my book or oh, absolutely if I'm writing or just researching, what does a florist do? Do they have to get up at a certain time of the day? Blah, hmm. blah. All of it counts. And it's all research and it's all part of your process. Mm, Yeah. You know, I often joke that staring out the window for five hours, it might look like I'm doing nothing, but I'm actually working. (laughs) I'm working. Don't, don't Don't take me doing it. Don't record it, but I am working here. (laughs) Well, and that is the truth, or I'll even say going out and overhearing conversations or oh gosh and things eavesdropping right yes you just say well and I always say uh and this always sounds a little bit woo-woo but in my mentoring group it's um you know you give yourself a break you're an observer and you need to go out and you can just say to the universe or whatever you believe in just give me something I'm feeling stuck or I'm not feeling really excited and that's the death of a story if you're not feeling excited, oh, absolutely. God help you. And the reader won't feel excited about oh, it. Oh, that is 100% true, Ange. And if you're writing 85,000 words and you're bored by the time you get to 15,000 words, what hope have you for your <laughs> for your readers? Because you've got to, you've got, you might necessarily like your characters and goodness, mm. I don't like all of my characters because there's got to be the goodies and the baddies and the in-betweenies, but you've got to be invested in them. You've, they've got to be interesting so that you stick with them and write about their, their journey. Yeah. Um, even if you do want to throw them off the cliff. Yeah, you know? well, maybe even so much the better. I mean, Jodie Pico's got a whole career around writing 
unlikable, (laughs) primarily unlikable characters. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. You don't have to, you know, like, love your characters, but you have to be invested in their journey. What's going to happen to them? Mm, I love that. So how do you come up with a new idea? Are you just sitting there and they, and they have been living in you for a little while and then one day they Um, pop up or you wake up in the morning or how is it? And where are you writing anything right now? Wake up in the morning. (laughs) Um, No, look, I think a lot of it comes from eavesdropping or reading something with Should You Keep a Secret, that whole, it's about friends who are out for for drinks and get invited to a party and they think it's just a normal suburban party. It's actually a swingers party, unbeknownst to them. So the whole idea of that story was sparked by me reading a tiny little, oh, goodness, just tiny, tiny little article in the local newspaper where a swingers party was raided in the next suburb from where I was living at the time. And basically, Angela just went, oh, my God, imagine if you inadvertently went to that party and saw the headmaster of your, you know, kids' school there or, you know, the local butcher or the the real estate guy or, or whatever it was. And with Should You Keep a Secret, it's that they see the husband of their other best friend Mm. who couldn't come along to the to the drinks. They didn't know they were going to the party at that stage. Couldn't come along because she was um, at home looking after her kids because her husband was supposedly working late, mm. they see. So that's should you keep a secret is yeah. what do we do? Do we tell her or do we keep it a secret? And, you know, that whole thing of shooting the messenger. What's going to happen if we keep the secret and what's going to happen if we tell? So that was fascinating. I loved writing that story. So it's also something where there's little things sparks in you. And to your point about whether you write 15,000, if you're bored, you know that as you're writing, instead of it sort of fizzling out or coming Mm. up with a neat and tidy solution, I don't know what that looks like, but a neat and tidy solution as you let it float around in your mind and then start to get words out, it sounds like it's self-perpetuating and almost grows as you're going more and more twists and turns. Absolutely. And what I do is I just keep saying, what if, what if this happened? What if this happened? Because you've got to keep escalating the drama and tension within the realms of possibility and plausibility. So Mm -hmm. What I'm writing, because I'm not writing sci-fi or fantasy or dystopian fiction, so it's got to be within the realms of what could possibly happen in your everyday life. The fact that, you know, the husband, um, you know, threatens them and says, if you tell my wife, bad things are going to happen to you. Things like that. So it's just piling on the tension and going, what if, what if, what if. I love it. Have you ever written anything that felt explicitly, and this is coming out of left field, but kind of because you were saying it was in a suburb next to yours. Yeah. Are all of your main characters a sort of parts of them, a version of you? Have you ever written anything that you secretly were like, that was a little bit memoirish or that (laughs) character was a little bit more me, but I'm not going to tell anyone? Or are they all a little bit Lisa? 
I know what you're alluding to, Ange. I'm not. not. You want to know if I've been to swingers parties. I was actually thinking, I wonder if she had any people in her area that when that book first came out here in Australia, if they were like, does she know? Because there was a raid party. And so were people thinking, oh, my God. She was there. She was there. And no, but does she know so-and-so was there? Oh, absolutely. So-and-so went there. And I also have to say, I mean, my children are adults now, young adults, but when they were little and teenagers, I would definitely eavesdrop and take notes about their conversations <laughs> with friends. I'd steal my mother's conversations with her friends or how she would speak to me and write it down verbatim. Again, in most of my books, there are generally three generations of women like the teenager, the mum in her late 30s, 40s, whatever, and then and then the grandma who's 65, 70. If the only one where that doesn't happen, I'm holding the book up, yeah. I know where, <laughs> uh, is Lily's Little Flower Shop where the protagonist, Lily, is 31. Oh, yeah. And she doesn't have children, and I think it's the first one I've written where the main character doesn't have children and is that young. And it's a fish out of water story. So she's a huge, she's a corporate, you know, high flyer in Sydney and loses a promotion and basically says, I'm I'm going to start a flower shop two hours south of Sydney and goes on a merry way. But um, the point of my story is that her parents live in Sydney and Daisy, her mum, is you know, I'm not saying she is my mother. She's not. But, but I mean, I'm not you know, saying she certain, she's my mom. Yeah. <laughs> she has characteristics and of that mother figure. Lily's the only child. She's moved out of the city. She's moved away from the family. And Daisy's doing everything, you know, to the point of saying to Lily, but Lily, you have beautiful hands they're not gardening hands they're not (laughs) imagine you know all those rose thorns you're going to get in your hand in your fingers you have city hands lily you don't have (laughs) country hands things like that that um I lost my track then but well I get it I'm about generational and I also do include real life conversations that I I think that's part of what I call, you know, it's not devils in the details. When it comes to writing, I think the magic is in the details because Mm. even if you were writing fantasy or sci-fi or something else, the the reason it's so resonant is there are universal themes. Absolutely. If you've got these real experiences, whether they were characteristics of your actual mom or someone else's mom or, you know, Mm. stories you you heard your teens talk about their parents, Putting in those real things gives it that truth that allows us to move forward believing everything else you've written, even though that is quote unquote fiction. I do have a final question because I could talk to you forever. So this will we'll say we'll do another. But you've got with Lily's, she is 31. You do have another story that have younger protagonists that... I think it's fascinating. And so just for you personally, how does that feel? Do you like writing more within the 30s, 40s? I mean, you've talked about multiple generations. So I think that's a beautiful Oh, look, I, 
I love writing young adult. And so in my earlier books, there are quite a few. When I say young adults, when the kids get to be teenagers, that's 16, 17, in I think Should You Keep a Secret, one of the sons of one of her friends is learning to drive. So all that was happening around when my own children were learning to drive. You know, I I always thought I wanted to write a... um, a young adult title because I do really enjoy writing about teenagers and there's so much, I mean, there's angst in anyone's life, whether you're 15, 50 or 75, no one's life is perfect. But I do enjoy writing about um, teenagers. But I also enjoy writing about the older characters as well because when you're writing about a 65-year-old or a 70-year-old, they can just... I'm not going to swear on your. Are you tired? No, swear away. It's no swear-friendly zone. Who gives a fuck? I'm going to say I'm going to wear my turbans. I'm going to wear my caftans. I'm going to do whatever I want because I've earned this. Yeah, I've earned the right at 70 years of age to be flamboyant or eccentric or or what have you. But I, I will say also that just. If there are writers out there, just to be mindful that when you are writing dialogue for a four-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 40-year-old or an 80-year-old, that dialogue has to be authentic. And I hate the word authentic, but, oh, but authentic for the time that you're writing. So yeah. if you want to write about teenagers and you don't personally have teenagers, you need to sit on the train at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning and then from 3.30 to 6 o'clock at night, take those long train journeys and just listen to them because, yes, you will hear Well, it, it won't work just listening to your own kids if my no. kids are anything to go by because they won't talk to me the yeah. way that they will talk to each other. And it's yeah. a whole different world now than it used Absolutely. to be. I think that's fascinating and, and so true that the thing that is most important when we're talking about that authenticity, whether we want it or like the word or not, hmm. it's really important because that is a detail. And talking about updating your books, that's one thing that kids would have said this, that, and the other. And we're not even talking about specifically about slang but that's absolutely true and it's everything changed and you know um whatever they have now the playstation 5 or something oh god (laughs) you know all of those all of those um computer games games and but yes and it is in the the slang and how they speak and you know oh too easy no stress 100 percent. you know yes yes well and it's changed too easy in, in 10 years. So even if yes. you're looking to write within a certain age range, whether you are writing YA or new adult now, which, you know, yep. early twenties, yep. which could be totally fascinating, definitely in the U S I'm not sure mm-hmm. about the UK, but definitely much bigger genre in the U S even if you're looking at crossover, because even if you're writing an adult novel, you can have characters, including main characters or protagonist, that's at a lower age. Absolutely, that's- and that's that's what I love. That's the pleasure of <laughs> staring at a blank page or a blank computer screen going, oh, my God, 
I'm the master of this domain. <laughs> so I can, you know, I've got 85,000 words to play with and to create this, these characters. Yes, I actually do want to have a 17-year-old boy in this. Or yes, I do actually want to have a couple who are 25 or, or whatever whatever it is that suits your story and and the and the story and the world that you're creating is exactly right you can that's the beauty you can write whatever you want to write yeah and especially because your ultimate goal is that triumph over adversity Hmm. right you know that and that's at that core value until or such time as Lisa's tired of writing about that and she's going to run out something else. I don't know. It may never happen, but that's that's why we like certain writers as well. All mm-hmm. of our favorite authors tend to have a particular message or a value that they're sharing over time in mm-hmm. totally different ways sometimes. But it's also what happens in music. There's a message that they want to get across. Yeah, absolutely. Like hearing it over and over, but just dressed differently. Yes. Like jobs and, and different challenges but that ultimate place where they land is the same, Mm. right? I love that. And just one final question. I'm curious because when we first met and knew each other, your kids were a bit younger. And so talking about after-school activities and all of that, and now they're all out of the house. Is that okay? How (laughs) has your writerly practice changed like I'm feel like you have more less disciplined <laughs> less discipline okay I used to be so disciplined when the kids were at daycare then it's primary school I would know that I just had that certain amount of time whether that was two days a week juggling with other writing jobs or what have you so I would make the most of it now, Ange, I seem to have all the time in the world, so I I stare, stare out the window. <laughs> I read, I read a lot, and go, oh my god, I could never write this. This is so good. Or, yeah, I'm. I would love to say that I'm more disciplined. So you know what? I know it's not the end of the year yet, but my New Year's resolution <laughs> will be: don't procrastinate. Stop procrastinating. Well, Get on maybe. with it. And also practice what I preach when I'm when I'm uh, teaching when I'm doing workshops. Oh, I love. Well, here's the thing. Number one, I always recommend go find out with Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies. Figure out mm-hmm. which one you are. If you don't already know, figure it out, and you can build a structure around yourself. So if you are like me, and you find out you're an obliger, then what that means is you have to get an external sort of accountability that you will meet. Because if it's just me with my own New Year's resolution. Maybe I'll do it, but probably <laughs> yeah. not. I'm, but if I tell someone I'm going to meet them, then I'm going to meet them and I'll do it. Absolutely. So I always have to have that external thing. But I also love hearing from you that recognition, which is lets you go a far way, but the joy and the beauty. So on the one hand, getting to appreciate that you've got all this time and you can do the reading, but recognizing where you got the best out of yourself. Hmm. And that means a little bit of structure. Right. So saying this is when I'm doing it. And I have run into many, many, many writers who struggle with this and say, but I've got all these hours. And then 
there's laundry or, oh, there's some fuzz over here or, oh, I just need to get a coffee real quick and the dog needs to go out for a walk. Oh, absolutely. I, I find the best thing is having a deadline. So when you actually do have that contract and you're editing or working on that second draft and you know that the publisher has said, well, we want that in four weeks, I find that it's it's uh, intimidating and it's it's nerve wracking, but goodness, it's uh, makes you work, makes you write. I was gonna say, I'm gonna have a very... quick, yeah, quick word with your publisher and say, hey, just tell Lisa she's got four weeks to write. She'll come up with a new manuscript for That's you in right. no time at all. I love that. Well, just uh, like I said, too, your advice to all other writers, just in recognition of what your own process has been and how it's changed over time as well. I think I had this conversation a bit with Sarah is recognizing where you're at and only change things if they aren't working for you, but recognizing, hey, this isn't working for me the same way it was. And then doing things to support yourself so that you can have the results that you want. And, you know, because we're talking in November, I mean, NaNoWriMo is a huge thing. I'm not doing it this year. And I have uh, done it many years, you know, in a row, but I knew that there were too many things happening for me this November to make that commitment. And what I try to, what I do say to writers is set yourself up for success, not failure. So if you know you can't, you know, if your goal is I want to write 5,000 words a day, seven days a week, but in your heart, you know, the output of 35,000 words is just outrageous. It's not going to happen. You have to scale and just go, no, you know what? A more realistic goal would be 2,000 or 1,500 or whatever it is yeah. that you can work within your, you know, your sphere of life because most of us need to eat and <laughs> do the grocery shopping. You're talking about Danielle Steele. Where she says, I just write 23 hours yes. a day. Yeah, exactly. You have a million children. Okay, yes. it's not a million, but yeah, there's no way, that. no way. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so I do say, look, just set yourself realistic goals, push yourself. But if something happens, one day, you know, the cat's sick, you need to take it to the vet or you sprain your arm or something else in the family, the wheels fall off. Don't beat yourself up. As um, Robert Cormier said, writing, it's not brain surgery. You don't have to get it right first time. All you have to do (laughs) is write and enjoy it, I think. I love that. Well, let's end on that beautiful note. Write and enjoy it. And I can't wait to talk to you again very soon. We're going to get an update on the next books, I'm sure. Oh, okay. Well, you out. Yes, yes. Okay. I'm going to follow you up. And we know it's November, but she's already stated her, her resolution for the new year. So we're going to hold exactly. you to it. Exactly. I am so glad that you got to chat with us today. Thank oh, you so much. Thank for you coming. so much, Ange. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more writers in conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.